0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 16. I, I start this way every single time we get together. I invite you to open your Bibles. And that's, that's not by accident. It's, it's on purpose because I believe that what we need, what I need, what you need is not me but we need God and we get him through the word. I believe that when we open this book and the Holy Spirit of God works through these words that he inspired, we behold the glory of Jesus. And that's what changes you. What's going to transform you and change you as you come Sunday after Sunday is a part of this body what's going to transform you and change you is not hearing tidbits of wisdom or funny stories or silly remarks that i make off the cuff or anything like that what what's going to transform and change you is beholding the glory of jesus not me giving you tips for your life lists don't change people love changes people And you need to behold, I need to behold the glory of Jesus so that our affections, our loves are transformed. That's my aim. Every time you come in here, I'm trying to mess with your heart. I want you to love Jesus more and more. And I think that that happens when his spirit shows you him through this word. And it shapes not just the way we think, not just what we believe, but it shapes our affections, what we love. So, I invite you to open to John 16. None of that was in my notes, all for free. Here we go. John 16. So on May the 20th, 2013, my wife woke me up with the words, I think I'm in labor. And we weren't worried. We were pros at this point. This was our third time going through this ordeal. Until that first real contraction hit that morning, and my wife nearly collapsed, and I was like, okay, this is different this time. And so we enter into this mad dash rush trying to get her to the hospital. We had to get somebody over to the house to take care of Karis and Levi. Once they were there, we're rushing out to the van. I open her door and run around to get in mine. I, I had a button that would close her door. Nobody think i just like left her over there, there was a button, anyway, okay, so I run around the van to get in my side, I get in, I shut the door, and I sit down, and I kid you not, another contraction hits, and my wife, who's not here to defend herself, she will deny it to this day, but my wife, who's still outside of the car, grabs onto the van and rocks it, It's at that point that once she was in the van, we went from zero to 100. I hit over 100 in a minivan <laughs> on Lakeshore. We, and we, we peel into the Brookwood parking lot. We rush up. We're in such a rush. We don't even get checked in. They don't even get an IV in her arm. And in under an hour, I'm holding Talitha. The intensity in that room was insane off the, the charts. But in that whole experience, what was even crazier was how that intensity turned in a moment. It wasn't gone. It, it turned. It turned as I, I watched my wife go from tears of pain to tears of joy. From cries to, to laughter. From intense sorrow to intense joy as Talitha made her way into the world in less than an hour. In John chapter 16, an hour of sorrow has arrived, but one that Jesus says will be turned. Turned into joy. It's an hour of sorrow because, as we've seen since chapter 13, we've seen that He's been speaking words that he's leaving and he's he's returning to the Father, which sounds like bad news, obviously, to all of his disciples, but he has promised them and insisted that it's good news. We saw him say that just last week in chapter 16 and verse 7. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's confusing to them. This sounds like bad news. You say it's good news. Their heads are swirling. and. And what we've seen over the past several weeks is we've seen Jesus unpacking how this is good news. We've we've seen him unpacking how it's for our advantage that he goes away. How it is that he's going to empower his disciples and us to be his people in this hour. In this hour, after his departure, he's not physically present. That's the hour we still live in in 2018. In chapters 13 to 16, Christ is unpacking what it looks like for us to live as his people in that hour. But here's the deal. Even after all that we've seen, about abiding in him, depending on him like a branch and a vine, about loving one another, about his sovereignty, even after everything we've seen, even after everything that he's shown these disciples, sorrow still fills their hearts. And perhaps it still fills yours. Like, everything Jesus, I, I, I want to say to Jesus, like, everything you have shown us about being your people in this hour, that's all great, Jesus. But I still have to go through this hour. This hour's hard. It's filled with so much sorrow. No wonder sorrow fills our hearts. I mean, shades. How much sorrow fills our wor- world in 2018? Like the news could just be called the daily sorrow update. Here's all the reasons you should be sad. And right here in John 16, Jesus doesn't ignore the reality of sorrow, he doesn't sweep it under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist. No, he looks, the sorrow of these disciples, he looks our sorrow square in the eye, and he makes this magnanimous promise. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And he doesn't just mean like somewhere off in the, in the distant future, like when all the trials of life are over and we're with him forever. He doesn't just mean then. He means Now. I I know that, not in the least, because of the last verse of our passage. Look down to verse 24. Jesus says, until now, until this moment, don't worry about what this means right here. We're going to unpack it in a little while. But until now, you've asked nothing in my name, ask. So the implication is ask now. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, ask now, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, in this hour, ask so that your joy may be full. This is how the disciples are to live in this hour. This is one of the things that sets them, that sets us apart as the people of Christ. Jesus says, in this hour you are a people filled with joy. That makes us distinct, different. In this hour, right now, amidst all the sorrow be filled with joy. I just want to ask, like, is he for real? How's that, how's that possible? How, how can he look the sorrows of this hour in the face? Incidents like what happened in our own city this past week at UAB, where we have several people who work. I can't imagine the terror How can Jesus seriously look at this hour in the face and say, your sorrow will be turned to joy? What could possibly make that happen? That's the question I'm asking this morning. It's the question I think that Jesus is answering. And it's really got two parts. It's really two questions. The two questions are what and how. What could possibly transform our joys to sorrows? And even once we know what that is, how? How how can it do that? Those are our two questions. We're going to take them one at a time because Jesus answers both of them in John 16, 16 to 24. We're going to breeze through the first one and sit down, hunker down in the second one. That's the plan. So, question number one, what? What? What could possibly happen that would turn these disciples' sorrow into joy? What could happen that could turn all of our sorrows into joy? Jesus tells us right up front in verse 16. He doesn't hide it, but he does say it rather cryptically. Look at verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. What does that mean? It's exactly what his disciples want to know. Verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, they've they've wisened up. They're done with asking him questions. He's like, you don't even ask the right questions. So they're asking each other. Some of his disciples said to one another, "What what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Perhaps at this point, even as we read the words of the disciples, you're getting a little bit better, a little clearer image of what it is that he is talking about. Maybe it's clearing up for you, but it's not clearing up for these disciples. They're still clueless, so Jesus helps them out, and I think his words make his meaning explicit. Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. Of course he did. Dumb to try to keep secrets from Jesus, just in case you didn't know that. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Are you picking up on the repetition of those words right there? They're kind of central to whatever is going on in this passage about about sorrow being turned to joy. Is this what you're asking yourselves? Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus says a moment is coming. Something's going to happen. A moment's coming. An event is going to happen that will change everything, something that will turn their sorrow to joy. They won't see it that way at first. Now Jesus said, truly, you will weep and lament. You you will be sorrowful. The world will rejoice. When we take those words of Jesus and we pair it with his other saying, a little while and you will not see me, it seems pretty obvious that this can only refer to his coming death. In just a little while, he will die, be crucified, buried. They won't see him. They will weep. They will lament. The world will rejoice. But then, a little while, something will happen. They will see him again. And their sorrow will turn to joy. Can Jesus be talking about anything other than his resurrection? This is what happens. That was our question. What what could possibly happen in order to turn sorrow to joy? This is what happens that changes everything. This is what happens that turns the disciples' sorrow to joy. John, our author right here, he's going to make this abundantly explicit once it actually does happen. When we get to John chapter 20 and verse 20, after Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and he appears to his disciples, this is what we read. Then the disciples were glad. They rejoiced is a better translation of the Greek right there. They were filled with joy. Then the disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. It's the resurrection that changes everything. And just in case we don't get the point, Jesus illustrates it for us in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, sounds familiar? Some lame preacher stole his illustration from Jesus. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour. That language is not by mistake. Her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. This is not an every case situation. This is a general principle right here. And Jesus is saying, he he isn't saying, let's start with that. Jesus isn't saying that a, a woman cannot remember the pain of childbirth after it's happened. No, no. They can remember What he's saying is an intensity switch is flipped. I've seen it happen myself, as I described to you just a moment ago with Talitha, from tears of pain to tears of joy, from cries to laughter, from intense sorrow to intense joy, all in an hour where the baby is is delivered. And Jesus says that's what's coming. An hour of deliverance. An, An hour in which, yes... I will die, but I will also rise. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What will happen that will transform our sorrows to joy? Christ will die and rise. The resurrection will happen. Easter will happen. And Easter affects Everything. How? That's our second question. That's where we want to spend the rest of our time this morning. How does this event, how does the death and resurrection of Jesus transform our sorrow to joy? I don't just want to leave you with like a nice Christian saying, of the resurrection changes your sorrow to joy, it makes everything better, all right, let's all go. No, how does that work? And I don't even mean just in an ultimate sense. Like we could say, well, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that means that one day when my life is over, I'm with him forever in glory, and all the sorrows will be over, will be complete joy with him. Okay, so there's truth there, although I'd phrase it a little different, and we'll, we'll get there. But I'm not just talking about in an ultimate sense. I'm talking about in this hour. How does the death and resurrection of Jesus enable you and me to be filled with joy even now? Because that's what it seems to me Christ promises his disciples at the end of verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. That's the resurrection. And your hearts will rejoice right then in light of the resurrection, John twenty twenty. And no one will take your joy from you, like ever, from that point forward. In this hour, you have unstealable joy. Because of the resurrection, you, Shades Valley, have unstealable joy. How does that work? I think that Jesus shows us how by giving us two reasons and a conclusion. Two reasons and a conclusion. So that's what I'm going to walk us through. Reason number one. In this hour, you will have unstealable joy, joy that cannot be taken from you, because you have an unslayable Savior. In this hour, you will have unstealable joy because you have an unslayable It's a made-up word, made it up myself, very proud of it, I like it, just feels good, unslayable Savior. By the time we get done with these two reasons and a conclusion, it's going to make one big long sentence, okay, for all you note-takers out there. So let's look at verse 22 again, and I want you to see if you can identify what it is that Jesus holds forth as the joy of his disciples. So also you have sorrow now because he's going away. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What is their joy? It's gone when he leaves, it's back when he comes. It doesn't go anywhere because He lives forever. What is their joy? It's not a trick question. It's Him. It's gone when He's gone. It's back when He's back. It doesn't leave because He lives forever. It's it's Him. They will sorrow when He dies, but that sorrow is temporary because His death is temporary. Yet they will have joy when he rises, and that joy will be permanent because his resurrection is permanent. Revelation 1 and verse 17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is alive, never to die again. He is unslayable. Therefore, If he is your joy, then your joy is unstealable. Do you see how that works? Christ alive forever, unslayable is my joy. Therefore, I have a joy that can't be taken. It's unstealable. That's some William Wallace logic right there, people. Okay, okay, so William Wallace is a real historic figure. He was a Scottish knight for anybody that didn't know. He was a leader in the Scottish wars for independence against the English. Most people just picture him as Mel Gibson with half of a blue face. Because of the movie Braveheart, obviously. And even if you haven't seen the movie, you've most likely heard somebody quote the most famous line from the movie. They may take our lives. I'm not going to do a Scottish accent, people. It's not good. All right. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Every time I accidentally leave open a, a baby gate or a door and Asher takes off. This is what I imagine him saying in his baby speech. <laughs> you take my life, but you'll never take my freedom. I'm weird. I'm sorry. I confess it. The point of those words, I mean, we take our lives, but never take our freedom. The point of those words is that everything could have been taken from the Scottish people, even their very lives. But what was most central to their identity couldn't be stolen. It was an idea. It couldn't be touched no matter how much they tortured William Wallace. The Scots, their their true sense of being a free people could not be taken in an even greater way, a deeper way, a truer way. The world can take everything from us, but they cannot touch our joy. Because our joy is Jesus, who has already passed through the waters of death, and instead of being drowned, He drank them down. We have an unslayable Savior, who is our joy. Therefore, our joy cannot be taken from us. It is unslayable. Stealable shades i we sit on this all the time i preach about this all the time because the bible talks about it all the time if jesus is your ultimate joy your foundational joy then nothing can take it you can have sorrows all day long but you still have joy in the midst of sorrow because nothing can touch your ultimate joy. If Jesus is not your ultimate joy, if anything else, anything else is at the bottom, and Jesus is up here, then sorrow can steal your joy, even the joy you think you have in Jesus. Like whatever your foundational joy is, that's what affects everything else. With Jesus as my foundation of joy, I can go through sorrows, and I still have joy in Christ. With anything else as my foundation, sorrow can take it and infiltrate every area of my life. It, we have an unslayable Savior who is our joy. Therefore, our joy cannot be taken from us. It is unstealable. It's reason number one. Reason number two. In this hour, you will have unstealable joy because you have an unslayable Savior and an unstoppable Father. You will have unstealable joy because you have an unslayable Savior and an unstoppable Father. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. In that day. In other words, in the day when my hour is complete, when I have died, when I have risen, when I have ascended, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Instead, you will ask my Father. My death and resurrection is going to change everything, including our relationship. You're here with me now, asking me questions now. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. I'm going to ascend. You're not going to be able to have this face-to-face conversation with me, but you're not going to be left alone because my death and resurrection doesn't just change our relationship. It's going to change the very nature of your relationship with God the Father. Earlier, I called this hour an hour of deliverance. And I called it that because, yes, of the metaphor, the birth metaphor that Jesus uses in verse 21, but I also called it that because that's what Jesus is doing through his death and resurrection. He is delivering us, saving us from our sin by uniting us to him. Scripture is clear, the gospel is clear that because of our sin, our rejection of God in favor of ourselves being our own God, that's what sin is. Sin is putting God to the side so that I can be in charge of my own life. It's substituting myself for God. And Scripture's clear that because of our rejection of God and our sin, we deserve nothing but God's wrath because our sin brings nothing but death to his good creation. He loves his good creation, so he's going to remove sin, remove death, which includes removing us. We call that death. I deserve for my sin nothing but death. But God Himself took on flesh and died the death that I deserved in my place. In my sin, I substituted myself for God. In God's salvation, He substituted Himself for me. He died the death that I deserved. And when when you trust in Christ, treasure Christ, you're united to him, and his death counts as our death. His righteousness counts as our righteousness. His status counts as our status, and his father becomes our father. First, uh, excuse me, the gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 12. To all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God delivered us, saved us from death, and we were delivered born into his family as his child with him as father. Truly Christ's hour was an hour of deliverance, for we were delivered in more than one way. Delivered from sin and death and delivered born into the family of God. Everything has changed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Christ tells his disciples, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Everything's changed. I've died, risen, ascended, not physically present here, but you're not alone. No. Through me, as we just talked about, through him, we now have a relationship with God the Father. And he says, you will now ask the Father in my name. Through me. You've got a relationship with the Father. You'll ask him now in my name. And here's the promise. Look at it again. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Unstoppable. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, if you've been with us all throughout chapters 14 and 15... We've already talked about passages that sound like this three different times. We've already seen in the past that when Jesus talks about praying in his name, he's not talking about using his name like a magic spell. Like, say a prayer, sprinkle my name on it, and you just get whatever. Like, I'll have a new house in Jesus' name. I don't know, that was my building of a house. I'll have a new job in Jesus' name. I'll, I'll take a spouse. I'd like to get married, husband or wife, in, in Jesus' name. I'd like a different spouse, in Jesus' name. If you laughed and your spouse is here, you were in so much trouble. No, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in line with who he is, in line with his character, in line with his will, in line with his wants, In line with his desires. If he's our joy, then his wants are our wants. His desires are our desires. All the other passages that we've read concerning prayer tell us what it is that is Jesus' want, his desire, his joy. Back in John 14 and verse 13, we read, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 15, verses 7 and 8, if you abide in me and my words in you, if your will is aligning with my will, your wants with my wants, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Again, John 15 and verse 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you it is abundantly clear that is it's the will of jesus the want of jesus the desire of jesus that god his father is glorified specifically that god is glorified by you bearing the fruit of a transformed life that's his joy and he says ask whatever you need for that like that mission, you living a transformed life with me as your joy over all else so that you bear the fruit of my love, the fruit of my peace, the fruit of my joy, the fruit of, of, of sharing the gospel, so that you bear fruit to the glory. of Ask whatever you need for that. Ask for God to make you more like Christ. Ask for God to mold you, change you, shape you through this word. Ask him when we open this word, show me your glory. I want to see Jesus change my affection so that I love him. Ask for a desire for the the word. Ask him to empower you to love others sacrificially. Ask for boldness to proclaim the gospel. Ask for Him to sustain you through suffering and and persecution so that you might hold on to Him and show His worth to the world. Ask Him to empower you to glorify Him. He will not hold back. He will stop at nothing to empower you for this mission. This I will do. It will be done for you. He may give it to you. He will give it to you. You have an unstoppable Father. Ask Him to empower you to glorify Him in the name of Jesus. For that is our joy. Is it not? Hang with me almost done. We're putting the pieces together right here. We said earlier that Jesus is our joy, our foundational joy. Him being lifted up, Him being glorified, shown to be beautiful, amazing, His love being shown forth. That's what we pray for. It's what we, we live for. We pray for God to be glorified in the name of Jesus. When we pray that, we are praying, God, make our joy full because His glory is our joy. Do you see how those two things fit together? When I pray, God, glorify Yourself. And God's glory is my joy. I am praying, make my joy full. Like your prayer for God to be glorified and for you to be filled with joy are not two different prayers. They're the same prayer. Because God being glorified is our joy. See that with me so clearly in verse 24. Jesus says, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. The situation's changing. He's going to die. He's going to rise. He's going to ascend. So through him, we've got a relationship with the Father. So now we can ask the Father. He says, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive. Based upon everything we've seen, we know what he means right here. Ask and you will receive. We know he means ask that God will empower you to bear fruit for his glory. And you'll receive that. You'll receive what you need to live a transformed life for the glory of God. Ask for God to be glorified through you and that will happen. But that's not how he phrases it. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask in my name, in line with my will, so that you will be empowered to live a transformed life that bears fruit to the glory of God. Ask that you may glorify God through me so that your joy may be full. For the glory of God in Christ is our joy. Your unstoppable Father grants that prayer Now. In everything in your life, even your sorrows, He can empower you to glorify Christ now, which brings us joy now. See, see the glorious and inevitable conclusion that this leads us to. Here we go, right here, full sentence. In this hour, you will have unstealable joy because you have an unslayable Savior and an unstoppable Father which guarantees transformable sorrow. Which guarantees transformable sorrow. One last time, verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, but now, as death and resurrection change everything, so that now ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Right now. Ask that God be glorified in the midst of even every sorrow you encounter. We talked about that, how that works a lot last week. If you want to dig into that more, go back to the podcast, but ask that God may be glorified even now in every sorrow that you encounter and every sorrow will be transformed to be working for your joy because it's working for the glory of God. You see how that works? When the glory of God is your ultimate joy and you ask him to use everything even your sorrows for his glory you're asking him to make your joy full please hear what i'm saying right here i'm not saying when we pray like this when we pray god use everything even my sorrows to glorify you and that's going to give me joy because your glory is my joy I'm not saying that when we pray like that, our sorrows disappear. Like, oh, the sorrow is no longer a sorrow. Now it's just joy because God is glorified. Awesome. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we, we pretend like the sorrow doesn't exist and we put on a fake smile. Not at all. I'm saying that in the midst of the sorrow, even as we sorrow, We pray for God to be glorified so that underneath our sorrow, deeper than it, is a foundational joy in Jesus. That he is glorified in our lives. Oh, we're sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Is that not exactly how the Apostle Paul says it? In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, he calls us a people who are sorrowful, yet Always rejoicing. This is what makes us a peculiar people in this world. I said that's what Jesus was going for from the very beginning. This is how he calls us to live as his people in this hour so that we are a witness to the world of him and who he is and his glory. This makes us a peculiar people in this world. This world is used to seeing people who despair because of sorrow. you are used to that. see it all the time. And they're used to seeing people who put on, who paste on a plastic smile, plastic joyful smile, and pretend like there is no sorrow. A lot of those are religious people. They're used to that. What the world is not used to is they are not used to a people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. People who are honest about suffering and sorrow but somehow they have an unslayable joy because because our joy is jesus who has conquered being slayed the world the world's not used to people who have an unstoppable joy We have it because we have a Father who will stop at nothing to provide all we need to glorify Him even in the midst of sorrow. And in that we find joy. The the world is not used to a people who have a transformable sorrow. This is how we are to live as the people of God in this hour. We take joy in glorifying Christ even when we're glorifying Him through sorrows. And we, we hold on to our ultimate joy in Him through all of our, our, our sorrows. And we do that until the day does arrive. I told you we'd talk about this eventually. We do that until the day does arrive that all of our sorrows are ultimately transformed. Like it's not... It's not that we reach the end of our life and our sorrows come to an end and then we get joy with Jesus forever. It's that He completes redemption. He completes the the turning, the transforming of our sorrows into joy. Just like Jesus' death was temporary, all of death's effects are temporary. Temporary. His resurrection on Easter morning was just the beginning, a a, a foreshadowing, a foretaste of what was to come. Easter will affect everything. On Easter Sunday morning, Christ did not just turn his own death upside down. He turned all of death and all of its effects upside down. And the day is coming when Easter will have its final effect. Just like Christ's death can be compared to the the sorrows of a woman in labor and his resurrection is like the joys of of new life at birth. So you can look at every single sorrow in your life. All of your sorrows are pregnant with joy. And right now you feel the labor pains. But those pains are just signs that true life is on its way. Every ounce of sorrow you experience is itself a sign that the day of deliverance is coming. Do you see how that works? Just like we talked about a few weeks ago, all the signs of chaos around us are really just signs that God is sovereign. The things that make it look like things are spinning out of control just show us that He is in control. So also with our sorrows. Your your sorrows are signs of pointers to the fact that he will take all of them and finish turning them, transforming them into joy. In fact, Romans 8.22 says that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth and labor until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly with the pains of childbirth as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, hope we were saved. We groan, Romans says, we groan with sorrows. And those sorrows are signs along with all of creation that we're in labor and delivery is coming. Easter will have its final effect. The completion of redemption. And every sorrow you have ever experienced will be redeemed. Every wrong righted. All of it. Turned over. Death wins nothing. Jesus wins everything. And so, even in this hour, we can be filled with joy. We can glorify God in our sorrows even now. And our sorrows don't win in the end. There's signs that final salvation is coming. Christ. Your unslayable Savior is coming. Your unstoppable Father guarantees it. Your sorrows will be defeated and transformed into joy. Amen.